Today's podcast is brought to you by Buick. The holidays are coming up, if you haven't noticed, which means you're probably about to hit the road. And there's nothing worse than feeling stuck in a car for hours on end with no snacks and no room to stretch out. I do not want to be in that car with you. Um, Ditto. (laughs) But it also is why uh, you should have a car that is designed with you in mind. And that's where Buick comes in. They build vehicles that are as unique as you are, even you, Carly. Thank you. Uh, So every single one of their seven models are made to complement your lifestyle, however you choose to adventure. Just hit the road with Buick, and you can use that time on the road to listen to some great podcasts just like this one. Speaking of ours, let's get into the show. You know, I told a boss at at CNN once, I was like, I can't remember. It was a guy, and he was saying something about there's no crying in baseball. And I was newish, and I was like, look, you don't know me, but... I get really passionate about my job and when I'm frustrated that manifests itself sometimes in tears so I will be crying at work this is not (laughs) baseball there will be a time where I will cry I'm Danielle Weisberg and I am Carly Zakin and we are the co-founders of The Skin you're listening to our podcast Skinned from the Couch where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it takes to get to the top and then what it's like along the way We're talking bad advice, the really low days, management mistakes, everything that goes into the real stuff. No BS. We started the skin from a couch, so what better place to talk it out than where it all began? We are on a couch right now. Join us in welcoming Samantha Berry to the couch. Samantha is the editor-in-chief of Glamour. Samantha grew up in Ireland and spent her childhood watching the evening news with her family. That's where she decided that news was the career path for her. So she became a researcher, then an international reporter. She told stories from everywhere, from Ireland to Papua New Guinea. And Samantha started to see the power of social media. She took that realization and she went on to help other major news organizations build out their social media presence. We're talking BBC, CNN, and now she's heading up Glamour, where she's working on building lasting habits with their readers. Anna Wintour has called Samantha Glamour's first digital native editor. So it's no surprise that Sam's decided to take the magazine entirely online. Samantha, welcome to the couch. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. Uh, first of all, congratulations. Uh, we were, we're so excited that you got this, this role and um, thought it was such a smart, smart move by Anna and Condé. So let's start at the very beginning. What was it about news that sparked this interest for you? I don't know, I just never, there's been never a moment where I haven't, it's that curiosity of knowing what's going on in the world. It's just this, I think in anybody that's in journalism or media, you have to, if you do not have that curiosity that's just all in, uh, overwhelming, um, it will be hard to, to get up every day and, and do the job that you do, whether that's in 24-hour news or whether that's at a women's title like Glamour. You just have to have a curiosity about the world and how stories are told. For me, I was just always really interested in newspapers and storytelling and the night news. And we had a lot of very, very actual, um, some very amazing female anchors that were in Ireland that were the biggest news people of my generation when I was growing up. So I watched them every evening tell me what was happening in the world. And I think when you see somebody that's a woman doing that, it's like, I can do that too, right? You you see You see that reflected, so... I've always been really interested in what's happening around me, but also what's happening in different countries. And I think 
my time spent in Papua New Guinea and Iraq and Pakistan and telling the stories that are happening in those countries, what you find is a lot of the stories are the same, but they're just in different contexts, right? Um, you, you can thread stories globally for, for women in particular. And that's one of the things I'm enjoying at Glamour is telling those global stories of women and making it relatable to women here in the U.S. One of the things that, you know, I've spent a little bit of time with you talking um, off of this and when in reading about you, even following your Instagram, anytime you do like a throwback a picture or when you talk about, uh, you know, your time, you know, moving across, across different countries, there's a fearlessness that come that emanates from you. And as you talk about experiences, it's like it's like listening to someone describe a movie. How were you always fearless? I mean, tell us some of the kind of if you had to skim, if you will, sort of the the craziest stuff that happened to you as you lived abroad. I think like some of it, I think now looking back at it in my 30s, I was very fearless in my 20s. And I uh, I think I did probably do things and go to places then that maybe I would take a little bit of a pause now. And I think often earlier in your career, you need to have that fearlessness of like stepping into a role that feels bigger than what you are or going to a place that seems a bit scary. And for me, there was a time period over the course of about four years that I did give my parents a lot of sleepless nights. I spent a year and a half in Papua New Guinea. I spent six months in Pakistan. I spent a lot of time in Iraq and in and out of Myanmar and Burma um, in 2012 and 2000 till until 2014 for the BBC. And I think you just got to be ready to take on a challenge. Some of those things, you know, some of those things, it was often quite dangerous, some of those places. But I always thought about it when I left, because I often worked with local journalists, that I was going in and I was leaving. But those local journalists were there all the time. And their bravery and their fearlessness completely usurped and over, you know, were, were way more than mine because there were people that were trying to report in, for example, there was a lot of amazing female journalists I worked with in northern Nigeria where there is a lot of violence. And every day that they would get up and try to tell a story about what's happening in their community, they were not paid well. They were often at risk of violence themselves. And I was there for a short amount of period time, but to watch them, you just get so much, You they have so much courage, those local journalists, in a way that people like me who come in and get the ability to leave probably don't have. I want to talk about kind of the arc of your career. Um, so you did this amazing reporting abroad in different parts of the world, and then you kind of moved into thinking about media on different platforms. And you did that at places like the BBC and CNN, and now obviously in a much larger role at Glamour, leading the charge there. How, from a kind of culture and strategy perspective, do you go into places that are much more traditional, are kind of stuck in sort of older journalism models and bring in something like the importance of social media, which is always changing. I think it was interesting. I was thinking about it this weekend before coming in to chat to you guys, because this podcast is about, you know, where you stretched in your mm -hmm. career and what lessons you learned or what mistakes um, you've learned from. And I think for me, going into a place like the BBC, I was actually, I went in as a traditional TV producer. So I was putting together TV shows for BBC World News. But in my spare time, after the hours I was supposed to clock out were the time that I was spending on the social strategy and doing something different. And I was often putting my 
hand up to do things that were outside of my job description, my general defined job description, which they do have at the BBC. Same at CNN. When I did go to take on social media at CNN, it was a newer role. And the opportunity was for me to make it what I could. And it, it meant I didn't. I didn't put it in a box. I made it work across broadcast and digital and big events and the election. And I think some of the things that I learned, especially at the BBC and CNN, is don't let the confines of the role define you. Often the way that you can grow is going outside that box and making the making your role bigger than, it, um, than it's defined on a piece of paper and really doing some more and I think especially for women earlier in their career putting their hand up to do more can be very beneficial in in growing their roles. So it's, it's a different type of fearlessness from when you're kind of you were hopping country to country and and to, to be able to have the confidence to to be like I know this is not what my job description says but like I don't know I know no one knows what's about social media right That's now right. you know yeah, exactly. this is you know it's not that long ago but so much has changed since then that you kind of just raised your hand and you're like I'll figure it out that's such a confident side of you. What are you unconfident in? Where was your insecurities at that point in your life? I think some of the time you're kind of faking it, right? Like I was, you know, I think I remember the first couple of times I'd done radio for ages, for years. And the first time I pushed to be put on TV, like I look back at it and I'm like, oh, my God, I was so bad, you know. <laughs> and I remember moving actually from from what was traditionally a radio role in Ireland to BBC to a TV role. And one of my senior editors saying to me, you came from radio, didn't you? And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you just cut this whole package together and you have voiced it. And you, you literally are describing every single thing that I can see <laughs> in the pictures. And he was like, well, I didn't even have to ask that you came from radio, but you'd learned, I had learned to tell a story a certain way in radio. And I was trying to transfer those skills directly into TV. And he was like, just let the pictures breathe. You need to let them breathe. And I think... I've always been very open to constructive criticism and growth. And I think one of the things that I talk to my team about and other young women and colleagues about is you've got to not be sensitive about ha having somebody help you grow. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is that that is that editor telling me, you know what, you don't write for TV. You need to change the way you write and you need to write for TV or it will be. I'm sure you have this here, guys, where it's like we're spiking this story. It's not because you didn't do a good job on it. Here are the reasons why. And I think one of the things you learn as you the, you get more confident during your career, and I definitely know for me, it's being able to take the constructive criticism and grow from it rather than getting sensitive and disheartened by somebody trying to help you grow. One thing that I think comes up a lot with our audience and also our employees is the idea of age. You were, you know, you talk about being in your 30s now. You've done so much um, in a short amount of time. And I think one of the things that we've seen is that there's kind of this stigma around being young in these positions. Mm -hmm. It's something that upsets me because I wish it wasn't an issue, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, that's amazing. You know, I see people on our team and I'm like, you've done so much in such a short amount of time. Was that ever an issue for you or how did you not let that into your head when you were thinking about things like applying for the job at CNN or putting yourself on TV? I think youth is an advantage, actually. And I think for me, youth was an advantage because often some of the people I was talking to either at CNN or BBC or other places hadn't the knowledge that I had of digital and social. And so I could go into a room and explain what I was going to do with the social strategy or the digital strategy 
And for some of those people in the room, I was one of the only people that understood that, right? And I have had that. I've even had that flip on me when I was at uh, CNN. I had one of my younger team members come to me and say, we need to be on kick. And I was like, I don't know what kick is. And she was said, let me sit you, sit you down and explain what kick is and how, how young people use it in America. And she did this whole presentation and I, I completely agreed. I was like, okay, well, it sounds like you know what you're doing. It sounds like you know the platform. Here's a bit of leeway and let's figure out what we can do on kick. So youth is often an advantage, especially in media. You have uh, understanding of what your peers, how your peers are consuming. And I think the reality is every media company in the world is trying to get, you know, people that are in their early 20s attached to that brand. So youth is an advantage in that way. It's interesting for me because one of the things I've talked about openly, youth can be an advantage in like being very digitally native, but it can also be a disadvantage if you don't know the old school skills of Mm -hmm. here's one of the things that I talk to younger editors about is some of them have never had a like real life phone conversation to order pizza right <laughs> like it all happens and like so or everything happens in dm yeah. and for me it's really important that you can actually pick up a phone mm-hmm. and make a cold call and go meet a source for a coffee or do those those in real life skills cannot be dismissed in just because you're very digitally native right so that's one of the things that some of the younger people that I've worked with in the past, I've tried to bring them into more of an old, like, it's great that they know to DM and they can search everybody out and they can get into... Can you order a pizza? But can you have a, a phone conversation and can you have a coffee face-to-face and it not be strange? Because it is a generation that have grown up that phone calls aren't necessarily mm-hmm. the norm. I don't know if you guys have that where it's, you it's know... It's so funny. Like, I I was thinking about something recently where someone was trying to... We were waiting to hear back from someone and someone in the office was helping us and they're like, I just can't get through to them. I can't get through to them. And I was like, well, did you call them? And they were like, no. Right? I get and that all the time. I think we... Because, you know, we're about the same age. Like, we are the last few years, like, culturally, where, like, you really actually did do business on the phone. Yeah. Now I don't even... I mean, we don't even have a landline here. I couldn't even tell you, like, how to call the scam. Yeah. Just, like, call <laughs> someone's cell phone. It is sort of bizarre, but I totally agree with you that you have to be able to cold call someone. You have to be able to negotiate something on the phone. You actually don't want to do something like that in writing. No. I hope it's not a lost art. No. I mean, it was so interesting. Even my... my team at CNN so there will be you know there's always internal politics between different groups and product and research and everything and people will come into my office and be like I have a real problem there's back and forth there's all these emails going back and forth and I'd be like okay let's pick up the phone and they'd be like what we're going to call yeah. them yes yeah. of course we're going to call them we're just going to sort this out right now and yeah. have a call and I think for a lot of younger people that listen to your podcast if they're thinking of how to differentiate themselves in the in the job market it is coming in with all those digital native skills but it's also being and by the way I know how to make a call and have mm-hmm. coffee and go for lunch and the fact that I've called you and got come for coffee with you is is a sign of it so you and I had drinks recently, and which was very fun. And it's always fun to have drinks yeah. with my Irish person. <laughs> it was great. I was like, like, gosh, I hope we don't have to order a tea or something. And he, I was sit down. You're like, we need two, like a bottle of sensor right away. <laughs> I was like, oh, I like you. It was very obvious to me that you became a businesswoman through CNN, and that that is where like you could tell you grew up professionally. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about. Um, 
kind of what that must have been like. And, and there were sort of two stories that stuck out to me that you shared, which I hope you won't be mad that I'm no, sharing. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, one is that um, actually how you met uh, Jeff Zucker, which is the, the, he- the is the head the, of a CNN. Um, and I don't know if you remember telling me this, but a, a mutual friend uh, t- said, you have to meet Jeff. Like, you need to work at CNN. And you said, who's Jeff? I was, I did, okay, I, well, in fairness, I was in London at the time. I was actually, you know what? I was at the BBC. I was about to leave. I was looking at, I was exploring a job at, at Facebook in London after the BBC. And then my friend met me and said, well, you've got to meet Jeff. And I didn't know who Jeff was. And Jeff Zucker had just started, had just taken over at CNN. And him and who, the person that would end up being my boss, Meredith Artley, who is this amazing editor-in-chief who I learned so much from, said well why don't you come over and meet us and honestly I was like free jolly to New York I'm there <laughs> I got a free flight to New York I'm going and then when I met that team I was like uh, I really was like no I have to do this job and on my second day or my third day Jeff asked me what I could do to help him and I said you can tell me what phone you have and he had a Blackberry which I knew was going to be the oh. answer and so he let me buy him a bat phone which is an iPhone <laughs> And I filled it I, because in honesty, for me, I was going in as the head of social media. For me, I needed to, him to understand what I was doing on those platforms for CNN. And he was never going to do that on a Blackberry. So did you have to teach him how to use the phone? You know, there was the occasional <laughs> time where I'd get like, what's my what's my Apple password again? <laughs> yeah. yeah, No, I think he, he definitely knows that this was bare mind four years ago, yeah, four, yeah. four and a half years ago. But that, that for me was, I was never going to be able to show Jeff or anybody else at CNN that what we were doing unless they understood what I was trying to do on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of all of those platforms. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We were just talking about winter road trips before the show started and how you have to have a car that can take you on those road trips. You want something that can go the distance with you and Buick knows that everyone is different. For example, my friend who has kids needs a ton of space and Wi-Fi so her kids won't distract her when she's driving. I want a car that can fit my dog in the back so she won't climb all over me. And I'm just happy if my car helps me parallel park because I don't really know how to do that. Lucky for all of us, Buick has seven, count them, seven new models that hit everything on each of our lists. Every single car is packed with helpful, easy technology that's designed around you. So for a car that complements your lifestyle, whatever that may be, check out Buick's new line of cars. And in the meantime, let's get back to the show. Talk to us about negotiating for yourself and your first time doing that. You know what? I honestly, again, something I didn't learn properly until my 30s. Like I think my first, it was, uh, I've told the story before, my second round of negotiations at CNN and I really wanted to negotiate for myself and one of the ways I did that was get some guys that were either on the same level or the level that I wanted to go to individually drunk and ask them what they were getting making and that was helpful because it gave me a, some knowledge right and I think what you're seeing more and more of and I saw it with my team at CNN <coughs> is a lot of the younger people share their salary which mm-hmm. gives them leverage and they understand where they are in terms of negotiation sometimes that's difficult as a manager if I'm being honest mm-hmm. But if you're negotiating for yourself, understanding what your starting point is, understanding where you are in the ecosystem is helpful. But money is not the only thing you can negotiate for. Mm-hmm. So for me, one of the things I negotiated for was an executive coach at CNN, some extra learnings. You, there's lots of different things. I think sitting down and taking some time and going, what do I want out of this job? 
Is it also extra responsibility? Is that one of the things you're negotiating for? Is it a title change you're negotiating for? Because the reality is, of course, money is a part of negotiations, but, you know, companies don't have unlimited money to give staff, right? So there, you may go in and negotiate for four different things, but it's understanding, first of all, before you go into that room, what do you want? Mm-hmm. And then for me also, like, I, I really... I negotiate for myself in three ways. And I think for anybody that's thinking about going into a company or negotiating within a company, I look at it in three ways. What have I done? Right. So what's the history? What's the narrative of what I've done so far? What have I already achieved? And number two, what's my market value? Right. Where am I in the world of people that they may be seeing? Why am I the standout? Where's the differentiator? And then number three is showing a bit of vision and foresight of where you want to take it. So if you think of what no, I don't care what the role is, if you think of those three things and honestly writing them down, bullet points, practice, role play with your friend, understand like, OK, here's where what I've done in my job here's where I land this is why I'm really important this is why I'm an asset to your company and number three here's where I'd like to take it if I if I, and just even a lot of people don't do that or they go in blind and I have a lot of really really successful women that are very confident in their personal and professional life and then it goes to negotiations and they fall apart like they so fall who apart you this like how did you how did you get this list of three things you know what? I've had good bosses in the past that have helped me. Um, I think I did as part of my one of my negotiations going to Colombia to do a Salz- Salzburger executive fellowship. And there's a guy there that teaches negotiation. He's like he teaches world leaders how to negotiate. So he's mm. tried helpful. But, you know, there's so much information out there that if you actually did want to, there's loads of how to guides on YouTube. There's loads of ways to track down that information. But more importantly, I think having a close group of girlfriends in particular that you can bat off those ideas and conversations with is important. As a boss now, what's the mistake that you see your employees make when they come to you for negotiating a raise or when you're interviewing someone? When somebody comes in and it's like, I've been here for a year, I need to be promoted. Yeah. It's not a time thing. It's not a time thing. And it's. I think it's anybody that goes in and, 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 and their they're jumping off point is like, I've been here for 18 months. I need some more money and I need a raise. You've already got me on the back foot because you're not coming in and, and explaining why you have grown. Right. So I think that's one of the one of the hardest things. And I do think there is a thing with young millennials where it's there is this race to get promoted every six months and it's untenable, right? Like mm-hmm. it's uh, it's unmanageable as a manager where... How do you... Because I totally agree with you. Right? And it's like, w- there's this weird thing right now that we're in where like we're millennials who are managers. Yeah. So it's like we get to kind of play both sides. We're like, you know, these younger millennials, they keep wanting to get promoted every six months. But at the same time, like if we didn't have ambition and if we didn't kind of push yeah. boundaries, like we wouldn't be in the position that we are right we are in right now. And I think you're very similar. How do you how do you kind of balance giving feedback when you're when you see those mistakes happening and, and saying, Well, I don't want to be like the pot calls the kettle black here. No. Like there there is a little bit of a, you know, I I'm glad no one said this to me. Yeah. When I was I age. think it's like again back to that there's more than just money that it will help you grow, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if the expectation is somebody coming in and being like, I just should get promoted because I've been here six months or a year, that's not going to work. But if it's, I want to grow in my career, how can we work on doing that together? Here's some ideas that I have and how I want more responsibility. And there will be cases where people, you know, you know, they move companies in order mm-hmm. to, to get promoted. You, th- there's just not this, um, some of the, you know, you've got... as 
startupish vibe here, right? There's it's not like a big institution like the BBC where you have like 70 different levels and that en- enables you to promote somebody every 18 mm-hmm. months, mm-hmm. right? It's 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 different and we work in we live in a w- different work environment and for me it's just it's also just being really honest with people like mm-hmm. you're nearly there you're not or here's some areas of improvement or here's what I'd like to see from you and often the feedback that I give to my teams especially around review time is and I learned this from my boss at CNN Meredith keep start stop and it's basically I want you to keep doing this because double down on this this is really good you're doing great at this whatever this is start doing this I need to see mo- you haven't been doing this I need you to start doing this and then stop put this down don't do this oh, anymore and it's a really nice it's a really nice framework for somebody to yeah. like so they get an idea of like okay I'm doing really well at this I haven't done this yet and actually I'm not that good at this so let's let's not do that anymore okay so I came up with the perfect go-to gift for literally anyone while you probably don't think of an electric toothbrush, it is the perfect gift because it is great for anyone with a mouth who is also busy. (laughs) We really love Quip. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. So there's also a reason for that. It has very sensitive sonic vibrations, which are very important to me. My favorite part, it is the gift that keeps on giving. They send you new brush heads every three months for just $5. And I think that's my favorite part. You just get them in the mail and immediately it just helps you keep your toothbrush cleaner. And you can even gift prepaid refills for a year to make sure your loved ones are never using old bristles, which is really a gift for them and for you. So that is why we love Quip and why they have thousands of verified five-star reviews, probably a lot from Skim HQ. Quip looks like a big-ticket tech gift, but has a very good stocking stuffer price, starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com skim right now, you get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com skim. Let's talk about Glamour. Yeah. How did it come on your radar? You know what? I always definitely, especially younger in my career, I definitely wanted to be an editor-in-chief. Um, Glamour's been around for 80 years, so I've obviously, you know, it's always it's always been on my radar. And then I was approached by Anna to put my hat in the ring. So the second that she asked me to put my hat in the ring, I was like, okay, this is, I definitely want this now. Because the more I thought about it, for me, it was the opportunity to take on um, a women's title that's been around for 80 years that has such a storied history and do what I've done at other places which is change and innovate and push forward the storytelling and so for me it was this opportunity to take on a women's title that means so much to so many people and be able to take some of the things I've learned from CNN and BBC and other places and my passion for women's storytelling and put it all into one place and, and do something I'm proud of. The day that, or the week that it was announced that you were taking over, people that n- knew who you, who, what you did at CNN and kind of knew, came from the news world, were like, what a smart choice. And then there are a lot of people who were like, wait, who? What? Who's this And person? like, Samantha who? <laughs> when I think about that, like, I, that's part of why, you know, I think we've been rooting for you so much in this role is that we, we love stories like that. And we know, obviously, how smart you are. What do you hope that, you know, a year from now, two years from now, people are... The, the, the Samantha Who's yeah. would say about you. <laughs> but do you know what? It's interesting because I actually quite enjoyed that part of it. Like the like, wait, who's this person? The reality is 
that this in the world that we live in in media today there is this mobility of people with skills that they can go across industry so yes of course 15 20 years ago the editor-in-chief of a women's publication a magazine would have probably come up the ranks and had gone from the beauty closet to assistant editor to executive editor and then they would have come from a very traditional role the editors-in-chiefs of today and you're seeing that across Condé world you're seeing it across all uh, different worlds Apple News just hired an editor-in-chief there is this this mobility across industries that we have great opportunity to be in and I am definitely delighted to be in today in that it means that it's probably an unexpected move 10, 15 years ago, but more of the norm now, right? You're seeing that in some of the, the hires made across the publishing industry and media in general. So I kind of enjoyed that part of it. it you know, it was like it was it was fun, right? And kept the secret for a while. And it, nobody. Yeah, it was it was fun for me. I think in two years time, I want somebody to be like, OK, here's what Sam's done in her at the last two years that she's been at Glamour. She's she's moved on the storytelling. She's worked with the business side to diversify revenue. And honestly, more than anything that makes me like happy is telling stories I'm proud of. And I don't it doesn't matter what medium we're talking about. But I want to tell stories that I'm really proud of and I get the opportunity to ultimately have the final say on what stories we tell at Glamour because I am the editor in chief. So that makes me happy. How was it to come in as a change agent (laughs) Um, (laughs) when you came in to Glamour, the previous editor in chief, uh, Cindy Levy, had had left. There were a lot of rumors about changes in a lot of different roles Mm -hmm. um you have a brand that's been around for decades and you have a team that is at the center of all that probably the biggest part in terms of being a change is bringing the team along with you right so for me this year it was having people that had traditionally only worked in print role helping them understand that your role now is going to include digital and social and events and everybody that comes in is going to be a Swiss army knife of journalists not the times of your where you just worked on one magazine piece for three months is is not the reality anymore and so I have a great features director who does a lot of her cover uh, stories but she's also been helping put together women of the year summit and she's one of the voices of the podcast for the heart family that we're working on one of the biggest things you can do as an agent of change because you cannot you can't do it alone right you can't do it alone and i think constantly communicating with your team why we're doing it this way this is why the changes are these are why it's important is a, a big part of it so there was a quote that we saw i don't know actually where it's from but okay. it's about <laughs> you talking about crying at work oh my god <laughs> and that's something that we've talked about on this show a bunch and it was it was basically i'm paraphrasing but I would hide my crying and then it was like, fuck it, I cry, okay? Yeah, I do, I do. Yes. Like, I'm not like crying at work every week, but I <laughs> But you know. no, but I think that's something that I've dealt with a lot of our, our listeners and audience has dealt with. Um, and now you're the boss, right? Yeah. At, at a place that represents women in all aspects of their life. It never made me feel good when I would cry at work. And yeah. like, I think I have that attitude now, but it's taken me a long time to get there. I, you know, I told a boss at, um, at CNN once, I was like, I can't remember. There was, it was a guy and he was saying something about there's no crying at baseball. And I was newish and I was like, look, you don't know me, but I get really passionate about my job. And when I'm frustrated, 
that manifests itself sometimes in tears. So I will be crying at work. This is not <laughs> baseball. There will be a time where I will cry. But I was like, I know, I know I'm a crier. So I just, for me, when I cry at work, it's usually because I'm frustrated, right? And I and I understand that in a lot of people that come into my office, if they're, if they uh, getting to the place where they're actually crying it's usually not you're not usually not it's not because you're sad it's usually because you're frustrated and I think people need to understand that and the frustration comes from a place of being passionate right and be caring about your job and caring what you do and I think it is much healthier often to show emotions and bottle it up and you know just kind of start hating things so for me just being very honest about yeah I do cry at work like it's you know couple of times a year I'll have a cry it's honestly and interestingly probably one of the things I've said in interviews that I've got most reaction out of young women (laughs) and people like reaching out to me about because people do like guys sometimes shout at work right and they're not being you know penalized for that Mm -hmm. women sometimes cry at work and you need to understand that have a box of tissues at my desk just in case anybody does you know what I mean it's just and and it's, it's also understanding it's getting the emotion out and let's move on now what can we do to fix this that's important how do you react when when someone is crying coming to you crying I'm quite empathetic so that's I think one of the things as a crier that (laughs) it helps I think you know and also honestly one of the things I've learned as a manager is often people just want to be listened to and sometimes earlier when I started managing people when I was in younger in my career I'd try to jump in with solutions like every second. The second that somebody would come in with a problem, I'd try to jump in. I've learned that sometimes people just want to be listened to. And them being listened to, whether it's them having a cry or having a rant or saying how uncomfortable or they're feeling about this situation or how annoyed they are about this, often people just want to be heard. And sometimes you don't have the solution. So I've, that was one of the things I've learned as a manager is just often just listen to people and give them give them their moment to be heard. Okay, last question. Worst piece of advice you've gotten? Just do what your job description tells you to do, right? Just, you know, stick in stick in your defined box. And I heard that early on, but I didn't listen to it, right? It's, but that's not in your job description is probably the worst p- piece of advice I've ever gotten. Could not agree more. <laughs> Uh, well, Samantha Berry, thank you so much. We're so excited Thanks for you. Thank you. So lovely yeah. to be here. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M.com. Two M's for a little something extra. Thanks, guys, for listening. Before we go, you're not done with us just yet. Since it is the holiday season, we want to tell you about a present we got you. Tis the season for gift giving, my favorite time of the year. So we built a new site to help you. It's called Celebrate Smarter because the holidays can be super stressful. We know you have a lot on your plate, literally and figuratively. So we're here to help with all of your holiday needs. We created guides on just about everything from how to set the table like an adult to what to give people as a gift to how to wrap a present the right way and everything in between. Go to theskim.com and click on Celebrate Smarter to gift, drink, and be merry all season long with us. Ho, ho, ho.